1: to another episode of out of the blank podcast i'm here with peter peter for everyone out there listening please introduce yourself hi everybody i'm
0: peter kuznick i teach history at american university where i also direct the nuclear studies institute i'm going to introduce myself my let's see i uh my first book is uh beyond the laboratory scientists as political activists in 1930s America, and uh, then uh, Rethinking Cold War Culture, which I co-edited with Jim Gilbert, several books that I published in Japan. The most recent one last year was co-authored with uh, Oliver Stone and uh, Hatoyama-san, the former Japanese prime minister and uh, my big project was a collaboration with filmmaker Oliver Stone on a 12-part documentary film series titled The Untold History of the United States and a series of books with that same title. So uh, <clears throat> the big one, which we updated in 2019, is a 900-plus page History of the American Empire a National Security State. And it's out in uh, Young Reader's Edition, uh, the uh, Concise Untold History of the United States, as well. Later this year, the graphic novel version is going to be out also. So it's out all over the world. The book was a New York Times bestseller for six weeks initially, and uh, it's been translated into probably more than 20 languages now. And the documentaries aired almost everywhere on the planet, although. China never actually showed them, but the, book, but the book is out in Chinese in two volumes. I got one behind me because I just did a Chinese TV show this morning. And uh, so, so, yeah, so that's what I've been doing.
1: yeah i'm gonna i'm just gonna uh i'm trying to get oliver stone on to talk about uh jfk because i want to know the secrets behind jfk uh, mostly because there's just a lot of controversy i'm too young to experience what happened so i want to dive down that rabbit hole but why'd you choose such like kind of like a dark route in history to go around i mean whenever like nuclear arms gets brought up you know a lot of people think like mass destruction even with nuclear energy people just think like the worst and i mean it's kind of what there's a low amount of information for the common public that knows about this type of topic. It seems like a lot of people think you're going to grow a third arm on you or something like that. But I didn't even know that I was talking to a past guest, his name is William. And he was telling me it's all like the good grace kind of, I guess, method, which is that nobody's going to launch a nuke at anybody because it would be like total devastation across the board. I was like, wait, so it's just held together by like that little small little principle and you start realizing it's way more complicated, at least for me, where it's like my, I'd never even thought to explore that area of expertise, but you kind of built a life around it. Yeah,
0: it's pretty dark. I think some of my colleagues who study Nazi Germany, and I can't imagine how they get up every morning and just start reading about all these horrible things. Uh, but I guess in some sense, I do similar things, even on a bigger scale. Because if what I'm worried about actually happens, then there's not going to be anybody left to write about it. So um, this idea that you're raising about mutually assured destruction or deterrence theory, as it's called by the experts, is a form of insanity. Uh, And it, it, it works up to the point where it doesn't work and there's nobody left around to tell them that it was a stupid idea to begin with. If you ever get to see the 1959 classic film On the Beach, it's got Fred Astaire, who we know as a 1930s, 1940s, 1950s dancer mostly, with Ginger Rogers. Uh, Fred Astaire plays a serious scientist in there. And he articulates the insanity of deterrence theory. This is a movie about an aftermath of a nuclear war. And the cobalt deuterium bombs create so much radioactivity that everybody on the planet is dead, except for people in Melbourne, Australia, the southernmost large city on the planet. And the US uh, submarine arrives there, captained by Gregory Peck, and it's about what happens in the last months as people there are waiting for the fallout to hit Melbourne and everybody there will be dead also. And they're talking about how were human beings so stupid, so short-sighted, so blind to do this to ourselves. And they've got these big town-town rallies with the uh, Salvation Army playing and the big banner overhead. You are, there's still time brother and that's the theme. But the final scene in the movie, they say, there's nobody left there. And the banner, "You're still time, brother, uh, is up there blowing in the wind with the message. And what uh, Fred Astaire character Julian says there is human beings made the decision to defend themselves with weapons that they couldn't use without committing suicide. And that's what it is, it's the Samson option in a sense. It's uh, this idea that if we use these weapons, effectively, we end up ending life on the planet. And we've known that to be the case. In fact, when Harry Truman stupidly, criminally used nuclear weapons in World War II against an already defeated Japan, he knew he was beginning a process that could end life on the planet. He says that the first day he got briefed, he'd been vice president for 82 days before Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945, and Truman took over. During those 82 days, he'd met with Roosevelt twice. They didn't talk about anything of substance. In fact, what's amazing, but Truman did not even know the United States was building an atomic bomb. Truman was such a non-entity. People had so little respect for him. Nobody even mentioned to him for almost three months as vice president, the U.S. was developing an atomic bomb. So he takes over there and now confronted with these huge questions and issues. But the first day in office, after he gets sworn in at the night of April 12th, he gets the first mention that, about the bomb project. He doesn't find out about it really till the next day when Jimmy Burns flies up from South Carolina. And Truman writes in his memoir, he said, we are building a weapon great enough to destroy the whole world. Truman gets a full briefing on April 25th from Jimmy Burns and Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project. And he says after that, that Stimson and and Groves, he says, Stimson said that even if we have this weapon, we should not use it because it could end life on the planet. And I agreed with him. Then when he's at Potsdam on July 25th, he gets a full briefing on how powerful the bomb test at Alamogordo, New Mexico was. And he writes in his memoir journal, he says, we've discovered the most terrible weapon in history. Quote, this may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley era after Noah and his fabulous Ark. Not a bigger, more powerful bomb. The fire destruction, the end, of, the end of the world. He knew that. He knew there was no justification for using the bomb militarily. Certainly no justification morally. He knew the Japanese were defeated and desperately trying to surrender. He refers himself to the intercepted telegram on July 18th as the telegram from the Jap emperor asking for peace. He says he went to uh, Potsdam to make sure the Russians were coming in as they had promised. And he met with Stalin for lunch on July 17th. And he writes in his memoir, in his journal, he says, Stalin will be in the Jap war by August 15th. Finny Japs when that occurs, he said. He writes home to his wife Bess the next day. The Russians are coming in. We'll end the war a year sooner now. Think of all the kids who won't be killed. He knew the bombs were unnecessary, and the bombs did not end the war. That's the big myth about World War II that somehow the bombs forced the Japanese to surrender and allowed us to avoid an invasion in which a half million American boys would have been killed. Truman writes in his memoir. That's not true. What ended the war was the Soviet invasion at midnight on August 8th. As the Japanese prime minister says, when he was asked why we have to surrender so quickly, he says, the Russians are in, uh, they've got, they're taking all this territory, starting with Manchuria, says pretty soon they'll be in Hokkaido. The structure of Japan, will, the foundation of Japan will be destroyed. We have to negotiate while we can still negotiate with the Americans before the Russians take over. And that's what ended the war. You know, We know that as historians, the public doesn't know that. As you were saying, the public knows very little of this. So back to your, your question of how one can deal with all these dark things without becoming morbid. I think you have to maintain a sense of humor. You have to maintain some sense of balance and proportion. And you have to realize what you're doing is affirming life. You're not focusing on death that by by trying to eliminate nuclear weapons, trying to eliminate war, what you're doing is affirming life. So I see it as a much more positive thing. And when I teach these classes, I have my students watch Dr. Strangelove and show skits from Saturday Night Live. And they listen to Tom Lear's brilliant uh, music m- mocking the nuclear arms race. So there's a, lot of, there's a light side to this also. That I think we have to also keep in touch with.
1: Well, I want to go back to the Hiroshima incident and the ending of Japan and everything like that as well too. But do you think that was? Do you think that might have been oversight on just the amount? Like we all see media every single day, really inflating a problem or inflating an issue or saying this and this and this. Do you think that maybe Truman heard, "Oh, this is going to be the disaster killer, the end of civilization type of like bomb," and then he was like, "All right, yeah, sure." Because obviously, I think everyone kind of knows that it was to really send a message. It wasn't really to end a war, do this whole entire thing to avoid a war, vo- avoid more casualties. It was to send a message for fucking with us in the first place. Sadly, that's.
0: Actually, let me take, Robbie, let me take issue with you. It wasn't sending a message to Japan. It was sending a message to the Soviet Union. Oh, shit. The Soviets knew better than anybody that Japan was defeated.
1: They tried to blow up the moon at one point. Uh, They tried to launch a nuke at the moon, Operation, I think it was 119, just to show with their nukes how big they were to the Soviet Union. So that makes sense.
0: Well, that's you're talking about in the aftermath of Sputnik in 1957, one of the plans was to detonate a hydrogen bomb on the moon. Uh, We also wanted to put missiles on other planets, uh, on the moon, and then elsewhere in outer space to nuke Russia on the ground if they ever attacked the United States. It was I.F. Stone, the great independent journalist, said we should have a department, a new department. And you know, it says the, the Latin word for moon is lunar. He said we should have a new department of lunacy and uh, to deal with the insanity of what the US was proposing. But back in 1945, The Japanese had decided that their best way to get better surrender terms from the United States to end the war was to ask the Soviets to intervene on their behalf. This is when they still had a neutrality agreement with the Soviets and they were gonna make concessions to the Soviet Union to come in on Japan's behalf and get better surrender terms from the US at least to allow the Japanese to keep their emperor which was their main concern at that point. Uh, And uh, so, Uh, former Japanese Prime Minister uh, Hirota met in in Tokyo with with the Soviet ambassador, Jacob Malik, and they had several meetings. Malik wrote back to the Kremlin in early June, the Japanese are desperate to surrender. So the Soviets knew better than anybody that there was no military justification for using atomic bombs against an already thoroughly defeated Japan. Uh, And so when the U.S. does it, the the Soviet generals and political leaders and Stalin and the uh, intelligence chiefs all say that the Soviet Union was the target of that bomb, that the U.S. was showing how ruthless it was, that if it was willing to kill hundreds of thousands of Japanese, mostly women and children, uh, as a show of strength, that what would it do with the, to the Soviets if they interfere with U.S. post-war plans in Europe or the Pacific? We were saying to the Soviets, what you would get is worse, much, much worse if you interfere with our plans. And that was the exact message that Stalin took from that as did everybody around him. And then they sped up their bomb project as a result.
1: When so you, it was- it, well, well, when you I, did your I, work I, with the untold history of the United States, You you probably learned a lot of dark stuff. I mean, I had um, the guy from who wrote the book on William Colby, uh, his name is John Prados on here. And I brought up the Watergate scandal and he obviously catches me as like a patriot type. And he took defense. He said it was a hoax. And I was like, well, there's Congress reports on it. And it became a really awkward conversation. But even when I brought up the Franklin uh, scandal or any of these types of things going on there, people don't think that their government does like nefarious stuff. And I'm like, well, they definitely do. There's plenty of recordings about it, but you get labeled a conspiracy person. I mean, you probably receive a lot of like kind of flack, I would say, from the things that you say, only because a lot of people don't think that this stuff is possible. And it's 100 percent possible. And it's happening still
0: except that in untold history you know oliver's history mm-hmm. in 1991 i think it was he put out his movie jfk which is a brilliant film is. but extremely controversial yeah that's all based upon the various conspiracy theories for who was involved in the kennedy assassination oliver before that was walking on water in hollywood his previous films, he'd won Best Picture, Best Director for *Platoon*, uh, Best Director for *Born on the Fourth of July*, other movies like *Salvador*, *Wall Street*. I mean, he he was Hollywood's golden boy at that point, and then he put out *JFK*, and they started attacking him more than six months before the film came out, based on a stolen first draft of the script, and. It took years off his life. Uh, uh, he defended himself, but he was accused of being a, the, the, some, one, one person called, said it was the uh, cinematic equivalent of rape. He was accused of being uh, a Nazi, of using Nazi propaganda techniques. Uh, George Will, the conservative columnist called him the worst, uh, what do you call him, A a sociopath. I mean, they all went after him in a way that had never happened. It was the most controversial Hollywood film ever made up to this point. And uh, it changed his career trajectory. Now he's branded a conspiracy theorist. And then after his 1995 film, Nixon came out, that reinforced the conspiracy theories. Uh, So when Oliver and I did Untold History, I steered clear of conspiracies. There is enough real history based on known sources that paint the picture of the American empire and the world the US helped create that one doesn't need to go to all of those potential things going on in the dark side. So we've got a lot of that in there, but it's based upon things that I can prove, not things on which I can speculate. Think, for example, George Kennan, the architect of US containment policy in the Cold War. Kennan wrote a secret memo in 1948 in which he says, the United States has 6.3% of the world's population, but we control 50% of the world's wealth. He said, we can't help but be the object of of envy and resentment. The task confronting us in the period ahead is to maintain this position of disparity. We're not going to do it by talking about human rights. We're not going to talk about do it by talking about freedom and civil liberties. We've got to deal with straight power concepts. That is such a crucial doctrine document because it lays out the real history of the Cold War and what's going to unfold in the period ahead. We live in a world now in which the richest eight people have more wealth than the poorest four billion people. We live in a country in which the richest three people have more wealth than the bottom half of the population. These things aren't accidental. They're by design.
1: That's what I call the Illuminati, but I got called a conspiracy theorist for saying that. I said, no, it's just people that found a way how to cheat the system. I've defended Oliver Stone so many times. I think he's a great guy. I'd love to talk to him on the show, but sadly, he's probably cut himself off from any media um, just because of the amount of like crap he gets from it. But i don't understand like i think it's a quest for absolute power and sadly i think people are very short-sighted when they put their personal beliefs into what these giant corporations or giant governments or whatever try and do i mean the best you can look through the history of the cold war you can look through the history of anything real stuff that is documented it's all for a quest of absolute power it's a quest just to prove how big and bad you are and we're not the only ones doing that. It's other countries as well, too. It just depends on who's the one that we're focused on or who's the one that's getting secluded. It really has. I would because it's hard to speak about this just because there's plenty of people out there listening that are be like, well, you don't know this. You don't know all this stuff. You don't know the other side of that either. That's the thing. I'm not saying you. I'm just saying people That always points to, or there's a welfare issue. There's all this type of stuff issue. Yeah, but there's something that's putting that in place. There's perspectives we don't see. And sadly, half of that stuff gets leaked 50 years later when the people that are involved in it are dead. It's like, that's when you want to start having like, a more transparency i would always push for like i'd rather them just give me a million dollars and then also give me a pile of shit in the other hand like i don't want you giving that other piece to me later i'd rather just have it both up front so i can make my decision but half the time you have to go through freedom of information acts you have to do all this type of stuff and it's like shouldn't we know the full scope of everything yeah, like Robbie, Robbie, I, th- I
0: think they're only giving you the pile right now i don't think they dollars <laughs>
1: Yeah, I wish so I had worst, the money. Worst,
0: the worst of both worlds.
1: Yeah. It, it, it becomes difficult because... <sighs> whenever you talk about something and it ends up like the whole Wuhan conspiracy or whatever you want to say, the fact that they completely isolated one thing and will label you as conspiracy theorists, that word doesn't have the same weight to it anymore. That word has it's like racist. Now someone tosses it out over. If you drink Pepsi or Coke, like it gets really, really difficult. Like things that you just told me a second ago, someone can listen to that and go, this all sounds like conspiracy talk. Why does it? Cause it's it, you have a lot of people aren't keen on what's going on with their government. A lot of people aren't keen on what's real things going on, and that is a fact that there's a lot of people that are disconnected from other people. And when you're making money, you don't care about other people. Like that's just the thing.
0: Well, it's interesting that Oliver and I got—I'd say 85 percent of the reviews were positive Definitely. or effusive, uh, and maybe 15 percent were hostile, Uh, but we didn't really get accused of being conspiracy mongers with untold history. We've got over a hundred pages of footnotes. We document everything. The documentaries went through three rounds of fact checks, CBS, Showtime, and our own fact check. We documented everything. I spent weeks showing that every single thing that we said could be documented by credible sources. So you don't even have to go to that to, uh, to to really show the ugliness of a lot of what's going on and why it should all be so much better. Even when you're going back, for example, to the atomic bombings in 45, most people don't know that the United States had eight five-star admirals and generals in 1945. Seven of the eight are on the record Publicly saying the atomic bombings were either militarily unnecessary, morally unjustifiable, or both, and the eighth general Marshall said that the United States could have easily uh, leveraged the Japanese. The Soviet invasion would, could easily have leveraged the Japanese into surrender without use of anything else. So you could argue basically all eight of America's top military officials knew that this was not militarily necessary. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral William Leahy, who was also Roosevelt and Truman's personal chief of staff, said that the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were no use in ending the war. And they put us on the same level of barbarians of the dark ages. Uh, But we can go through General Eisenhower's comments, General Douglas MacArthur's comments, MacArthur says that the war could have ended in May, three months earlier, if we had told the Japanese they could keep the emperor. But when we knew that was a stumbling block, because we've been intercepting their cables, and that's what they said explicitly. Uh, So uh, we could have given them that assurance in the same way that Biden could have given Russia assurances about NATO expansion before the current war. Why didn't we do that? Ukraine was not about to join NATO. That was clear. Uh, And we wanted to cling to this principle of open door policy with NATO. And as a result of that, now we're in the midst of a very, very ugly, potentially catastrophic war. And so it's tragic that you have people there in positions of power who are not statesmen, who do not see the world through a prism of peace and negotiation and diplomacy, but view it in terms of power, greed, and geopolitics. And and uh, as a species, we're lucky to have survived this long and there's no guarantee we're gonna continue surviving.
1: I like what you said there about species. When you said the word species, see people say countries now, people identify them with invisible lines that are dividing them between states and different areas across the globe, rather than one human species, even that boils down into race. It, it, it really becomes difficult because I feel like if you had like that's why I was always interested in the alien topic, because that's the one thing that we unite a lot of people is something else bigger out there. But we're fighting amongst each other and you see no progress get done, whether it's the Biden issue, whether it's whatever presidency, it's been running in the way that best fits their pocket. It's the way that's been running that only fits. There's a lot of like um I always say with like the United Nations or something, they broadcast that on television. To me, that's just an event. That's not a real deal stuff getting done. You know, that's getting done behind doors. Um, It's just, it's very, very like it's not transparent to the public people see this and they go oh everything's going good like you hear about biden meeting the russian meeting putin and having a a handshake or whatever and talk about yeah we're not going to do any of this and then you see that's not what happened they were had an argument or they got into a little confrontation i just want the truth of things and no matter if it like warts and all just give it to me and i think this is not just us i just think it's the way that the system's been running so long, it's corrupted people. And I don't. I think it started a long time ago, long before the issues we're dealing with now. And it's scary to think. I used to be interested in planetary defense, thinking an asteroid was going to hit, and the fact that we're still here today, we're so lucky. That's like that with nukes. The fact that someone hasn't launched that off, all to show how powerful they are. Maybe you have a bad fight with your wife or something. You decide to launch off a nuke. Just because you can, you have the power, you shouldn't have that there. Now I get it, it's a a defense line,
0: what? Nine countries have nuclear weapons now. That's a lot. Mohamed ElBaradei, the former head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, said that at least another 40 have the technological capability to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, I was just on right before this, our talk today on CGTN, Chinese Global Television Network, And we spent a half hour talking about North Korea and the North Korean missile test that they just launched. And this Wasong-17 intercontinental ballistic missile is huge and powerful, and it can carry a payload that weighs in the tons. And that could include multiple nuclear warheads from one missile that could hit every place in the United States and pretty much every place on the planet. Uh, and, And we're, you know, we've got the right now, based on what you were just saying, there are two men on the planet, each of whom could end life on the planet. Each has veto power over the future existence of life on our planet. One is Joe Biden and the other is Vladimir Putin. And then there are seven others who could come close to ending life on the planet, although they don't right now have the firepower. But Xi Jinping is moving in that direction. Uh, and others are also expanding their nuclear arsenals. So we're in a very precarious situation. Uh, the, what are the, maybe you could say in a perverse sense, positive things that come out of the Ukraine war is that people are talking again about the threat of nuclear war. The fact that there is a threat of nuclear war is insanity and certainly not a good thing but the fact that people are talking about nuclear issues is a good thing. I, back in the 1980s, that was the number one galvanizing thing that brought the world's population together, was anti-nuclear movement. It was vast and it was universal in Russia, as well as in Washington, as well as in Beijing, everywhere. But after the end of the Cold War, nuclear weapons fell off people's radar and that's the situation we've been in to a large extent until recently but the threat has grown and not just in other parts of the world obama who won the nobel peace prize for his prague speech in 2009 calling for nuclear abolition obama began a trillion dollar 30-year nuclear modernization program for the united states it's now closer to 2 trillion dollars the amount we're going to spend on that to make america's nuclear arsenal more efficient and more lethal. But all nine nuclear powers are modernizing right now. And the situation could easily get out of hand by miscalculation, by misperception, or deliberation. You know, we believe, although it's sometimes disputed, that Russia has a policy of escalate to de-escalate, where if they're in a bad situation, they're willing to use a, a tactical nuclear weapon to show how serious they are. And they think that the other side's gonna back down. But we've war game that out for decades and the other side doesn't back down. The other side retaliates in kind or escalates. And then what do the Russians do? They escalate further. And before long, we're in a full scale nuclear war. And that's the, the danger from this kind of, from having nuclear weapons at all. There should be no nuclear weapons. Nobody should have the power to launch nuclear weapons.
1: How do we fix that? How do we, how do we, we can't just, nobody's going to be willing to do a trade agreement and give up their nuclear weapons. They're going to keep some, whether they tell us it or not. I wouldn't say
0: that. Uh, Reagan, the the troglodyte uh, reactionary, Reagan and Gorbachev in 1986 at Reykjavik almost agreed to eliminate nuclear weapons. They came within one word in that agreement. Gorbachev said to Reagan, if you will only promise, if you will promise to restrict Star Wars testing, ballistic missile defense testing, to the laboratory for the next 10 years, we're willing to give up nuclear weapons. But Reagan refused to do that. He turns as uh, George Shultz urged him to do that. His other advisors urged him to sign. But then he turns to Richard Pearl, the prince of darkness. the the brains behind the invasion of Iraq. Uh, He had some help from Wolfowitz and others, but he was the main policy person. And he says to Reagan, you can't do it because it'll destroy your Star Wars legacy. And Reagan, with the intellect of a five-year-old, you know, had this idea that you could put this shield over the United States and protect it. uh, And that was going to be his big legacy. And so he refused to give it up. Gorbachev was crushed and... You know, went back and met with the Politburo and said they think they can outspend us and destroy us. And in some sense, they were right, partly because of the stupidity of Russia invading Afghanistan, which they, like we, thought would be over in days. Or like the Russians now in Ukraine, three days were going to be in Kyiv. And we're gonna, we were going to take over you get, Afghanistan when we went in there overnight. And the same thing with uh, the Russians in 79. It doesn't happen. Wars are not like that, especially when people resist.
1: Do you think that it's possible now to go back to like almost a one word type thing where you can have everybody settle and put down their nukes? Because I feel like there's no trust to be able to accomplish that. might have been easier before when there wasn't so many, but they probably to think that they're not working on something bigger than a nuke right now, that they're not researching something bigger is just that's the. That, that would be the dumbest type of thinking. They're obviously doing something like that. Everyone is. Everyone's probably researching, how do I get a bigger bomb, a bigger one? That's all it's always been. And Who has have, the actually, most?
0: Actually, actually, we have made progress. Back, uh, you know, I take students every summer in a study abroad class to Kyoto or Tokyo and Hiroshima. Take and me. Respect. Well, people can sign up. It's through American University. We we did it every year from 1995 to 1999, then we got hit by COVID. And so we haven't done it in the last two summers. And it's an amazing experience because we traveled with Japanese students and professors and we experienced the whole thing together, World War II, Japan's atrocities and America's atrocities. And both countries have a lot to answer for. We spent a lot of time with atomic bomb survivors, one of whom, one of the more famous, travels with us the entire two weeks we're in Japan which is a very, very, very dear friend. Uh, but the, I'm, I forgot where we were going with that, but uh, the possibility exists to deal with these things, uh, but it's gonna, and there's a huge international movement. I, every year, nominate Nihon Hidankyo, the Japan Atomic Bomb Survivors Association for the Nobel Peace Prize. They've been there, their motto is no more Hiroshima, no more Nagasaki's. What happened to us, we wanna be the last ones to ever experience this. And they've been in the forefront of the abolition movement really since right after the atomic bombings of 45. Uh, but they're getting very old and many of them have already died and many, more, they've, almost all the people who were affected have got radiation, had radiation poisoning. They've all got cancers. Many of them are in and out of the hospital. And it's, the goal was to eliminate nuclear weapons while they were in their lifetimes, while they were still here to appreciate it. And we haven't succeeded in doing that, sadly. Could it happen, do we need to have one world? Maybe we do. There was a big one world movement right after World War II. And the idea was now that nuclear weapons exist, is no, the idea of sovereignty and nations and divisions by geography or ethnicity or religion or race is no longer tenable in the nuclear world. And there was a huge one world movement for a while, but then the realists took over and Truman with his backward policies, foreign policy and nuclear policy You know, Truman should not have been vice president and president. The man who should have been was Henry Wallace. And Wallace was Roosevelt's vice president from 41 to 45. On July 20th, 1944, the day the Democratic Party convention began, the Gallup released a poll of potential voters asking them who they wanted on the ticket as vice president. 2% said they wanted Harry Truman as vice president 65% Sixty-five percent said they wanted Henry Wallace back as vice president. Wallace was the second most popular man in America behind Roosevelt. He was also one of the most progressives. And uh, but the party bosses controlled the convention. Roosevelt was too weak, near death, to fight for Wallace as he had in nineteen forty, and so the party bosses were able to steamroll the convention to get Truman in there. But it came so close. In fact senator claude pepper from florida wallace made the seconding speech for roosevelt that first night and pepper realizing there was a spontaneous demonstration led by adlai stevenson and hubert humphrey among others for wallace it went on for an hour in the middle of that pepper realized if he could get to the microphone get wallace's name and nomination that night uh, that he would defy the bosses Wiles will be back on the ticket as vice president. And he fought his way to the microphone. He got within five feet of the microphone. The party bosses are yelling to Sam Jackson is chairing it. Adjourn this immediately, it's a fire hazard, adjourn. Jackson asks, he says, I have a motion to adjourn, all in favor say aye. Maybe 5% said aye, all opposed nay, 95% said nay. He says motion carried, meeting adjourned. Pepper was literally five feet from the microphone. If he had gotten five more feet to the microphone and nominated Wallace, Wallace would have swept the convention that night, been back on the ticket as vice president, and he would have become president instead of Truman. There would have been no atomic bombings in World War II and almost certainly no Cold War. History can be different. You don't need conspiracies. This was not a conspiracy, although it was. What is a conspiracy? Two people getting together and planning something. And this was more than two people. This was a half dozen or 10 people, all the party bosses. And by the third ballot, uh, the deals kicked in, the money changed hands, the postmaster general positions, the ambassadorships were announced, and then Truman finally got the nomination and the world has been fucked ever since, in a a certain sense.
1: So how do we fix this? Because it seems like we're on a loop. The thing is, is that, There's always going to be something, whether it's the good intention people that are going into office in the first place, there's always something that ends up changing or something happens or some type of event that people can't explain that gets across where a bigger mission's always at play. And it's the same thing over and over again. It's recorded through history. It's the same type of crap. So I wonder... You were mentioning before about taking tours with people. Is it teaching the new generation, at least steering them away from the nuclear thing, showing them, educating them? Because the way you've talked to me about it, I have a different perspective than what was taught to me in school. Maybe it starts there with the younger generations until the older generation dies out and you have all these people that don't want to use that as a weapon. But there's always this idea that the other person is up to something bad, so you better be on it as well, too. In case the gun gets shot, you're there as well, too, with your gun. Like, there's always this...
0: that's That's a great point, and it leads to threat inflation, and it leads to fear, and these leaders know they can always play upon fear. One of the reasons I'm so furious with Putin for having invaded... Not, not only because of the humanitarian catastrophe inside of Ukraine, but because he's given credibility to the worst warmongers on the planet. The people who were saying, well, Russia has no legitimate national security interests, that Putin is simply a tyrant and a dictator and a demagogue. You know, those are the people who come out looking right. Those of us who were saying that Putin was not going to invade, I did about seventy five interviews on Russian TV in the three months leading up to the war uh, with when the Russian troops were on the border there. And I kept saying to Putin that the world is finally for the first time talking about Russia's legitimate national security concerns, that Zelensky is saying that that Ukraine will have to become neutral, neutral uh, instead of siding with NATO, that then NATO is, NATO is off the table for Ukraine. I've seen that Putin should declare victory, pull those troops back and begin the diplomatic channel to resolve things. Uh, but what's happened instead is that Putin lived down to the worst explanations and projections by the warmongers all over the planet. So now Russia has been greatly diminished. Putin's been greatly diminished. Uh, in fact, and many people see it now as a US versus China Whereas before, they were seeing it more three-way in terms of the struggle. But what we need are leaders, and it can happen. But what you've got now is Biden wanting to make America great again. Putin had wanted to make Russia great again. And Xi Jinping wants to make China great again. And Modi wants to make India great again. And you've got that jerk Abe in Japan calling for Japan getting nuclear weapons from the United States, nuclear sharing. And South Korea, we've got a new president in South Korea named Yoon, and he's very, very right wing and reactionary and a warmonger and talks about preemptive strikes against North Korea. And they want more than 60% of the South Koreans want South Korea to develop its own nuclear weapons. In many ways, we're going the wrong direction. And there is no leadership, there's no statesmanship. What I've been calling for and things I've been writing and saying is Xi Jinping to intervene in Ukraine, he's the one person who's got leverage over Putin: economic leverage, some military leverage, moral leverage, political leverage. And it'd be the best favor he could do for his buddy, Putin, to use that leverage to get him to negotiate to end the war. Right now, Russia's economy is being destroyed; its military looks weaker than than we've imagined in years. Mar- morally. Russia's position has been totally undermined. Uh, geopolitically, it's much weakened. This is not in Russia's interest, this war, and is certainly not in China's interest. Having a weakened partner in Russia is not in China's interest. Xi Jinping and China are viewed negatively all around the planet. In much of the West, China, more than 75 or 80 percent of the population views China very negatively. When you talk about China, they think of Hong Kong, putting the democracy movement there. The, uh, they think about uh, uh, Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. They think about the South China Sea and China's aggressive policies, Taiwan. Instead of being seen as a bully and a dictator, if Xi Jinping can negotiate peace, he can be seen as a peacemaker. That would be so much better image for him in China and begin to, to defuse the tension right? Biden takes office. What is his goal? Completing the Asia pivot. The main enemy, he says, is China. And the U.S. is going to rally against China. But the U.S. has gotten distracted by what's happening in Europe at this point. But that's the goal. You look at the people who Biden brought in as his top advisors. Blinken, right? He looks like a statesman. He sounds like a statesman. He supported the invasion of Afghanistan, supported the invasion of Iraq, supported the invasion of Libya, supported the bombing of Syria. This is Sullivan. You know, these people are hawks, super hawks. Biden surrounded himself with 16 members of the Center for New American Security, the hawkish foreign policy people. We've seen the same thing happen over and over again. Reagan brought in the right wingers from the CPD. Before that, uh, um, Carter brought in the Trilateral Commission advisors. George W. Bush, all the top advisors just about were from the Project for a New American Century. What was their goal? Invading Iraq. I mean, not a surprise that that happened. Biden made the same mistake again with the CNAS people. Trump brought in his generals. You know, nobody, well, Trump is a clown show, so that's a somewhat yeah. different category. But we, we see this over and over again the wrong people with what you were saying, this view of the world based on enemies, fear. And the other thing that's going on is some people profit from this war. The Lockheed Martin and other defense contractors, we call them defense contractors, they're killers, right? Back after World War I, they were called merchants of death and that's a more appropriate name. The the song that really reflects that is Bob Dylan's song, Masters of War, probably the angriest song ever written. when Bob Dylan had his head about him, the young Bob Dylan. And it's a brilliant song about these people and what they do to our planet. Well, Lockheed stock is up 25% since the start of the year. So some people profit every time a bomb goes off, every time a drone goes off, every time somebody's killed, there's a cash register clank. Uh, clinking in the background, and these people are profiting off that. These people are the scum of the earth. And in 1934, 35, there were actually Senate hearings, the Nye Committee hearings uh, actually had passed a proposed legislation that was enormously popular to nationalize the defense sector as soon as the war started or to tax them 99% so they won't make a profit, won't make a dime off of people's being, people being killed. But they're out there lobbying every day for these kinds of aggressive, hostile foreign policies, talking about how dangerous the world is. And it's that fear, the ability to play upon fear. Henry Wallace, after he was ousted as vice president, uh, stayed on in the cabinet as secretary of commerce. And he makes a great speech as he's seeing the war, the, the Cold War evolving seeing the nuclear arms race evolve. And he does everything he can until September of 1946, when he's finally fired, uh, to try to stop this process. And he says, out of fear, countries are acting like wild beasts. And he talks about the insanity of what the United States was doing. And it was fed by Churchill and his Iron Curtain speech, and all the other people who had this vision of a world that could not be friendly. And it's not just at that point when we could have prevented the Cold War. March 5th, 1953, what happened? Stalin dies. And the Russian leaders, Soviet leaders reach out to the West. They offer an olive branch. They say, we can negotiate on anything. They basically call for an end to the Cold War. And Eisenhower makes a brilliant speech talking about the cost, the amount of resources we waste on every bomber we build, every jet. Uh, And then two days later, John Foster Dulles the secretary of state undermines everything Eisenhower said and accuses the Russians of aggression everywhere on the planet and it's that same kind of two-faced you know one step forward two step backwards diplomacy that we've exercised ever since and the world doesn't have to be that way i mean well what's yeah, the fix uh, how do, do you change talk-
1: how do you change that though that's the thing that's, why I,
0: that's why I do this year I'll do 300 interviews, the way it's going, and why I go speaking all over the planet, and why we wow. write these things. And that's why Oliver and I try to do that. That was I our know. goal with Untold History. And we made some headway, the attitudes on nuclear bombing, for example, which we focused on extensively. Uh, the last poll that I saw in uh, 19, in 2016, showed for the first time, a plurality of Americans saying they were opposed to the atomic bombings in 1945 rather than supporting it. It was a CBS news poll. You know, it's not enough, but at least we made headway. Oliver and I went to campuses all over the country, almost every major university. And what we showed was our Hiroshima episode because we thought that's the start to it. And we won people over. And we we showed other episodes also before we gave our talks, but we're just trying to do that. And we have plans to do more. Our, our graphic novel is gonna come out this year, which is a way to reach a whole new generation of people. How Howard Zinn's graphic novel of people's history has sold about 85,000 copies. And we're hoping to do something similar with our graphic novel. So there's no way to know what tips the balance in terms of moving towards Saturday, a movie toward peace, instead of this perpetual warmongering but right now the planet's in a bad, bad shape. And right now we're in a very precarious moment and this could easily spiral out of control. And that's what people are warning about. And we've got to make sure it doesn't.
1: I'm glad there's people like you out there that are really trying to speak about these things because uh, if i have any questions on anything i'm definitely coming to you because you know a lot holy crap man that's what but i I, th- I just wish the public wouldn't get so distracted on things like i'm gonna have to re-listen to this episode to be able to soak in everything you just said and look it all up and be able to educate myself even more as well too and i hope the public does that too when they listen to this the the thing is is
0: that and, 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 people- and robbie that's, that's what oliver and i realized when we were doing untold history is that Each episode, we had 58 minutes and 30 seconds. Now, when I wrote the initial drafts, I thought Oliver would narrate them like a New Yorker on speed. However, you can't do that with a documentary. I'd never written a documentary before. You have to go slowly. You have to put in all the visuals. You have to put the music. Uh, And what we realized is that even though people said it was the most dense documentary they've ever seen, and even historians, so they had to go back two or three times because there's so much information. Uh, we decided halfway through that we had to add a book because we couldn't convey all the information we wanted in, in 10 or, we ended up being 12, 58-minute, 30-second episodes. There's so much to be known, and, and the world does not know this. Uh, you know, back in 2007, when we were just beginning to write it, the US issued a national report card. And it said that the area in which American high school seniors came in last had the poorest and was not math or science, it was US history. 12% of high school seniors were judged to be proficient in US history, not outstanding, but proficient. The level was so low, so low that only 2% could identify what the Brown versus Board of Education decision was about, even though it was obvious from the way they asked the question. And so we're dealing with this blast, a vast ignorance that's so terrible because if we don't know the past, not only are we doomed to repeat it, but we don't realize that things could have been different. And so that's why there's so little utopian thinking now, so little thinking about alternatives. People think, well, this is the world and it couldn't be any different. But one of the reasons why Oliver and I show how close we've come over and over again to not only a different world, but a better world uh, is because people have to think and understand that that is possible.
1: I think people have to wake up and sadly, we get too distracted on too many things, man. It's so, it's so easy to distract our attention from the most important things. So many riots that were happening and good movements and situations that were going on that just, what, faded away? Where, where'd they go? I don't know where they went. And, and that's
0: sometimes th- those seeds are still there and we can germinate them.
1: That's the thing though. We shouldn't be getting right to the doorstep and then being afraid to knock. We should be going through, we should be actually producing change and making things. But then people pull out like, Oh, it's the anniversary of Capitol Hill. I was like, why the hell are we doing what the, what we're, we're completely just sideways. And it's like, whoever's the political person in charge, everything swings in their narrative. And I'm really upset that the people have so much power that they could stand up and make change, but Sadly, you know, you drop a new iPhone out and everyone gets distracted. It gets it's it's and I think we're better than that. I honestly really do. You know, a lot of people really don't have faith in humankind. I I do. I hold it out. I think we're a fourth quarter type of person. We're the one that's going to work right at the end and we're going to change it. But whether it's a narrative or it's something like climate change, something like that, it's our issue, but that's all you see. They had Gabby Petito, the influencer that was missing on TV for almost five months. It was ridiculous. I get it. We got to move on. But the real issues that are happening now, it's a war. So many of the news corporations that are saying we stand with Ukraine, we're talking shit on Ukraine weeks before. That's what people don't realize is that they don't that's think that's about
0: the, that. The same people. Uh, supported the US invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya. The same people who are now so sanctimonious about Ukraine uh, were the, are the warmongers. And so maybe they're right on Ukraine. You know, they, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And these people happen sadly to be right on Ukraine, not in terms of their understanding of what caused it or what has to happen in the future, but they're right that this invasion was wrongheaded, illegal. Immoral, potentially catastrophic, and it's got to be stopped. But a lot of these people see this as an opportunity to further weaken Russia rather than to end this. And when Biden says that you know we need regime change, it just shows where his mind is at. He's not thinking about ways diplomatically to end this war. He's thinking about ways to gain further advantage over Russia, and and so we're we're in a sad moment,
1: Peter. I got to have you back on. I'm telling you, you y'all let me go through this episode and soak up all this information again, man. But please, where people can find you, any links that you have, any advice, anything you want to give out there. You gave us so much information, dude. Your brain has to be like, you have to be great at trivia night. I'm telling you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, Well, they, they they should really read the book, The Untold History. I've got it behind me. I don't know if you can see it. It's 900 pages now, but it's written. It's very, very fast moving. Nobody ever said it was bit boring. We wrote it to be really fast moving and watch the documentaries, they're brilliant. It contains my history with Oliver's brilliance as a director and Oliver's concerns. And it, 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 I mean, I, I, I show it to my students and they're flabbergasted, you know, they still are, so often speech I've, I've
1: seen it. It's pretty good. I, I'm a big fan of Oliver Stone. I try, Like I said, I try to get him on here to talk about JFK and all that stuff too, but you guys do some great work on some stuff too. I think he gets a bad rep in some circles, at least from what I've heard, but I, I, my family likes him. So I like him too. Good. It's a good guy. Hey, Robbie, it
0: was great talking
1: to you. Yep. Peter, I'll link all your links in the description and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.